focus on headline. And let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio, we have our Friday reporters in Changana and Hong Sung-yeon. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Good evening to you guys. We're going to start things off with some diplomacy news. Uh, our new foreign minister, Cho Tae-yeol, uh, had his first phone call with U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, uh, discussed uh, South Korea's U.S. relations, U.S.-Japan cooperation, and uh, North Korea issues as well. Hannah, you're going to start us off. Tell us about the phone conversation that took place between the top two, uh, two top diplomats there. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, according to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Friday, Cho made his first phone call with Blinken the previous afternoon. Now, the two ministers shared their assessments and concerns about North Korea's threats, including firing some artillery shells into the water of the West Sea earlier this year, and strongly condemned North Korea's illegal nuclear and missile development and provocations, as well as its military cooperation, including arms support to Russia. And in this regard, the two said they will continue to work closely with the United Nations and other international organizations to ensure that the international community fully fulfills its obligations under UN's Security Council resolutions. They agreed to also continue to strengthen the effectiveness of extended deterrence through the USROK Nuclear Consultative Group and the Extended Deterrence Strategy and Consultation Group. Now, Blinken told Cho that the U.S. would continue to communicate closely and work together to advance the alliance, and Cho also expressed his hope for a closer partnership, saying he has a great responsibility to further develop the achievements of last year's state visit by by South Korean President Yoon and the 70th anniversary of the ROK-US alliance. Now, recalling that this year marks the 30th anniversary of the trilateral summit between South Korea, US, and Japan, Cho called for deepening trilateral cooperation based on the agreements reached at last year's Camp David summit, which Blinken echoed. Blinken said he hopes that a mutually convenient time, Cho shall visit the United States to hold in-depth discussions on ways to strengthen the USROK alliance and US-Japan cooperation. Now, the U.S. State Department's press release included references to the Taiwan Strait and South China Sea that were not included in the South Korea's announcement. And the State Department said that Secretary Blinken and Minister Cho agreed to continue to work together to address the complex and evolving security challenges posed by North Korea and to support peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait and South China Sea. Now, the move is seen as a method of deterrence amid concerns that the outcome of Taiwan's presidential election on January 13th could lead to increased levels of Chinese military action around the Taiwan Strait. Now, Blinken also congratulated the Republic of Korea on its election to a non-permanent seat on the uh, United Nations Security Council, where it will begin serving this year, according to the State Department. And Blinken also emphasized the importance of the strong U.S.-ROK alliance in promoting peace, stability, and prosperity around the world. Now, he also thanks uh, South Korea for joining the joint statement issued on the 9th by foreign ministers of nearly 50 countries, including the United States and South Korea, condemning Russia's aggression against Ukraine using North Korean-made ballistic missiles. I believe uh, Foreign Minister Cho Tae-yeol also held his uh, very first press conference uh, since taking office as the new top diplomat of South Korea, uh, where he pointed out that uh, the 
uh, artillery fighting, uh, firing by North Korea last week, uh, not to mention also the number of provocation that we've been seeing from North Korea is because North Korea is very much anxious and pressured uh, due to the extended deterrence uh, between South Korea and North Korea, uh, sorry, South Korea and the United States, and also the uh, strengthened alliance between South Korea, the U.S., and Japan. Uh, I believe uh, Chotir also mentioned that the North Korea at this time is doing all it can to try to break up this alliance between the three countries uh, and to try to create a rift so that there's uh, no trust amongst the three. And one of the things that uh, I believe it was Professor Panjiu, uh, who joined us in our program earlier this week, he pointed out the reason why he sent that uh, condolence message to uh, Prime Minister Kishida calling him a uh, your excellency um, referring to uh, Kim Jong-un is because he has no other countries other than in the three countries he can't he's not going to talk to South Korea he's not going to talk to the United States well he could certainly talk to Japan because according to North Korea ironically they're the lesser of the three evils is what it is and so a lot of interesting things coming out right now and Chote already uh, very uh, I guess vocal in the current situation on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, in the meantime, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken saying on Thursday that the U.S. imposed sanctions on three Russian entities and one individual for their involvement in the transfer and testing of North Korean ballistic missiles for Russia's use against Ukraine. It's interesting they're seeing a testing of North Korean ballistic missiles. Uh, Singhal, let's get the details of this. Sure. So the sanctions were imposed after the White House announced that the North had supplied Russia with a several dozen ballistic missiles, some of which were used used to strike Ukrainian targets on December 30th, January 2nd, and Saturday. Now, the U.S. Department of State stated that the entities and individuals were complicit complicit in the transfer to Russia and testing of DPRK origin ballistic missiles by Russia since late November 2023. So according to the department, the designated entities are the Ashlook Firing Range, the 224th Flight Unit State Airlines, a state-owned enterprise spun-off from Russia's Air Force, and the Vladimirovka Advanced Weapons and Research Complex, which is a military site involved in missile testing. And the sanctioned person is Vladimir Vladimirovich um, Mikachik, who is the general director of 224th Flight Unit State Airlines. Now, Blinken said in a statement that the North Korea's transfer of ballistic missiles to Russia supports Russia's war of aggression and increases the suffering of the Ukrainian people and undermines the global non-proliferation regime. Also mentioning that the U.S. continues to closely monitor any Russian-provided support to the DPRK in return for these weapons and will use all available tools to designate and expose individuals and entities involved in arms transfers between the DPRK and Russia. So according to Japan's Kyoto News, the Ukrainian government has recognized the North Korean short-range ballistic missile fired by Russia into its territory on January 2nd as a KN-23. And an Ukrainian official said that it is the first time that a North Korean missile used in the war has been identified as a KN-23, a projectile similar to Russia's Iskander missiles. Now, Ukraine's authorities collected missiles uh, debris in Kharkiv, the country's second largest city, for study by a defense ministry research lab in Kyiv. And a comparison of the debris and images of the KN-23 
in a video of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un visiting a missile site, revealed that a lot of the debris parts had the same shape. Also, South Korean and U.S. military officials believe that Russia utilized North Korean-supplied KN-23 missiles as well. Yeah, so this went to the U.N. Security Council, right, uh, where uh, the number of issues in regards to uh, Russia receiving North Korean uh, missiles and stuff like that was brought up. Uh, but <laughs> Kim Sung is uh, continuing to say, this is uh, North Korea's uh, UN ambassador, Kim Sung, uh, came out saying it's lies. And also, by the way, why do you guys care what Russia is doing? It's their own thing. Stop, uh, you know, mind your own business. And by the way, also, we didn't give any missiles and so forth. There's no clear-cut evidence. And Russia also came out saying that you guys have no proof. You guys are making things up right now. You guys are a bunch of bullies. And uh, boy, it was, a, it was a chaotic scene over at the UN Security Council, as we, of course, uh, predicted it was going to happen. Uh, speaking of which, at the permanent mission of the uh, South Korea to the United Nations announced on Thursday that uh, joined the joint pledge related to climate, peace, and security. Uh, this by the Security Council members in its first action on climate and security uh, since the start of the term on the UN Security Council this year. Hannah, let's get the details of this. Sure. Now, the joint pledge was launched in March of last year to strengthen coordination within the Security Council among the Council members with similar positions that emphasize climate and security agendas. The signatories of UN Security Council's climate and peace pledges will work together to ensure that climate and security are included in all Security Council activities and related documents. They will ensure that that the climate and security agendas are elevated when they assume the presidency of the Security Council. Now, official from the permanent representatives to the United Nations said, we will work to ensure that the Security Council responds to the international peace and security impacts of climate change in a more systematic and pragmatic way based on objective evidence. Ambassador Hwang Jung-guk participated in a brief press conference with representatives of the 10 co-signatories before the afternoon a Security Council meeting on West Africa and the Sahel region. Now, the co-signatory said in a statement that we express our deep concern about the serious adverse impacts of climate change on peace and security in West Africa and the Sahel region and call for urgent action. Let's move on here. Uh, we've been getting a number of uh, Supreme Court uh, finalizing uh, previous initial course from the lower course, the appellate courts, uh, regards to forced labor issues. We have yet another one uh, where South Korea's Supreme Court ruled in favor of a Korean victim of wartime forced labor, ordering a Japanese company in Nippon Steel uh, to pay significant amount of compensation to the surviving family. Unfortunately, the victim of the forced labor uh, is not with us anymore. Uh, again, we've had similar rulings being made in separate cases last month. Uh, Singyan, tell us about this uh, recent uh, announcement by the Supreme Court. Sure. So Mr. Kim was taken from his home in Korea to Japan in March 1943 and was forced to work in a mill for Nippon Steel without being paid until he was able to return home in 1946 after Korea gained independence from Japan. He died in uh, 2012 and the family of the late victim filed a suit against the Japanese company in 2015. So on Thursday, South Korea's Supreme Court uh, upheld the appellate court 
court's decision ordering Nippon Steel to pay a hundred million Korean won, or about seventy-six thousand U.S. dollars, in compensation to Mr. Kim's wife and their two children. Now, the top court made similar rulings in separate cases in December, ordering Nippon Steel and other Japanese companies such as Mitsubishi Heavy Industries to pay as much as one hundred fifty million Korean won, or about one hundred eleven thousand dollars, to each victim. However, the Japanese companies are likely to likely to continue refusing to pay, and the Korean government is expected to compensate the victims instead using funds procured through a public foundation. Uh, such a plan was announced earlier this year to improve relations with Japan. So Im Sooseok, uh, the spokesperson of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, said that since last March, uh, following the announcement of our government's plan to resolve the forced labor issue, we have been paying the delayed compensation interest to the plaintiffs through the Foundation for Victims of Forced Mobilization by Imperial Japan. And uh, Im said that there is no change in our policy to continue making such payments in accordance with ongoing court decisions. And the new Minister of Foreign Affairs, Cho tae also said at a press conference on Friday that he hopes Japanese private companies join the efforts to solve and improve Korea-Japan relations. So Japanese companies have yet to pay the previously ordered compensation, claiming the statute of limitations has expired. But last month, the top, top court clarified that this would not be allowed. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to hold my breath on that one, right? Uh, we've already had the discussions before. I think these uh, the governments of South Korea and Japan had discussions uh, when they made the decision to come up with this compensation plan uh, that the Japanese government and the Japanese companies are not going to take uh, not going to be involved with this. Uh, so instead, you're going to see uh, Korean companies and the uh, Korean government uh, getting involved with the payment with this, which has uh, brought about uh, quite a bit of uh, controversy, at least with the, the surviving, some of the surviving victims who said that they're not going to be compensated. They're not going to be receiving the compensation from the South Korean companies and the government but wait until they're finally able to get the compensation from the Japanese companies. Uh, let's talk about another uh, court case here. And this is something that's been going on for years. It's been over 10 years, I think. Uh, an appellate court on Thursday overturning a lower court's ruling and sentence two former heads of a humidifier disinfectant manufacturer to prison on charges of producing and selling toxic products. Uh, Hannah, tell us more about this. Sure. Uh, the sentence by the Seoul High Court marks the latest guilty ruling in the long-running toxic humidifier disinfectant scandal, one of South Korea's worst consumer goods disaster. In 2011, consumers started to report deaths and illnesses allegedly tied to humidifier disinfectants widely used in households in dry winters. A government-led investigation later confirmed the link between the two. And as of 2023, 5,690 individuals were eligible for state-backed compensation related to toxic humidifier disinfectant, including 1,262 dead victims. And among other corporate heads and executives, Hong Ji-ho and An Yong-chan, former CEOs of SK Chemical and Egyeong Industrial, respectively, 
were indicted in 2019 on charges of producing and selling toxic humidifier disinfectant, resulting in lung illnesses such as asthma and deaths deaths among uh, consumers. And in their first trial in 2021, a district court found both Hong and An not guilty, concluding that the causality between the lung illnesses and chemicals in their products had not been proven. Now, the Seoul High Court on Thursday struck down the previous ruling and sentenced both of them to a four-year prison term, recognizing the responsibility of the firm's humidifier disinfectant products for lung illnesses among consumers. Now, the court said Yugong, the predecessor of SK, rejected calls for a toxic chemical test for its humidifier disinfectant products from inside and outside the company and went ahead with the launch and sale of its products. Now, the court said that the accused decided to commercialize their products without conducting any safety tests and resulting in a great number of unspecified people suffering massively without knowing the cause and leading many of them eventually to die. In a related case in 2018, the Supreme Court finalized a six-year prison sentence for Shin Hyun-woo, who is the former chief of Oxy Record Bankister Korea, who was convicted of homicide through professional negligence and falsely advertising the company's disinfectant as safe. I don't know if you guys remember this particular incident. Uh, back in 2011, this was like the biggest issue right. of that year. And uh, the reason why it was all the more uh, controversial was not necessarily just a figure in itself and the number of people that were impacted by this, is also because many children, right. oh, many babies, right. mm-hmm. were impacted by this. And so, as you know, like, uh, you know, what is it? Uh, during the wintertime, things are, you know, it's, it gets very mm-hmm. dry because we have the whole under system in mm-hmm. place and then, you know, the, the heated floor system and it gets very, very dry. And so what do you do, especially in a family that have kids, you have these humidifiers on all the time and... You know, mommies, they're very cautious uh, when it comes to kids. And they're always, even my household right now, I mean, every single day my, my wife is cleaning the humidifier. And mm-hmm. so back then they had this nice little, you know, uh, disinfectant. And next thing you know, all these kids are falling ill. Some of them are dying. They had no idea what it was until they found out that the one thing that in, they had in common with all of these uh, victims was that they were using this particular disinfectant. And what was even more shocking is that Many people were using these uh, humidifiers with these disinfectants uh, in hospitals. Mm. Hospitals mm-hmm. also get very, very dry because they're also because you have so many patients, right? And they're mm-hmm. they're super cold and they have the the heater on, on blast, and so because it's so dry, a lot of people actually bring in uh, their personal humidifiers, and so because of that, not only did you have children, uh, young babies, and also patients were impacted by this and this was such a huge yeah. huge issue and uh, i'm not surprised that even after was it uh, wow almost uh, 13 years uh, since mm-hmm. the case first brought up that we're still talking about this in mm-hmm. this program <laughs> uh, let's move on and talk about the economy this time the finance ministry on friday said that the country is showing signs of economic recovery powered by exports but uh, domestic demand remain sluggish sunyan uh, let's get the latest on the economic assessment of the green book that was released uh, sure. So the Ministry of Economy and Finance stated in the Green Book, uh, the monthly economic assessment report, that the signs of an economic recovery centering on exports have been rising and inflationary pressure has been moderating. But of course, the pace of recovery among sectors has been different. And according to the Green Book, external uncertainties also linger owing to the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, as well as the unstable Middle East uh, situation. And among 
other uh, factors, uh, concerns about a global economic slowdown remain high, although expectations have grown for a turnaround in the IT sector. So after a year-long slump, exports, a major economy driver, have seen on-year monthly improvements since October last year, rising 5.1% in December on the back of robust semiconductor sales. Now exports are predicted to rise 8.5% this year to a record high of more than 700 billion US dollars, rebounding from a 4.4% uh, uh, fall in 2023. Meanwhile, domestic demand remained weak amid high costs and interest rates. And if you look at the retail sales, which is a gauge of consumer spending, inched down 0.3% year-on-year in November. And according to the Korea Development Institute, the figure improved from a 4.5% drop the previous month due primarily to a low base effect and temporary factors such as significant discount events for vehicles and other commodities. Now, according to government data, output from the service industry and facility investment remained weak as well. And policymakers have stated that prices have moderated at a slower rate than predicted. So consumer prices, a key indicator of inflation, rose 3.2% year-on-year in December, marking the fifth straight month that prices remained over the 3% mark. Although growth has slowed down for two months in a row. And inflation rose 3.6% on year in 2023 and is expected to fall further to 2.6% in 2024. Now, the Bank of Korea held its benchmark interest rate at 3.5% for the eighth consecutive session on Thursday, stating that any rate drop would be out of the question for at least uh, the next six months. So the ministry said that the government will put policy priority on supporting the livelihoods of the people based on stable prices, managing real estate project financing, and other potential risks, not to mention boosting the economy for the future generation as well. So speaking of uh, exports and imports, one of the things that we've been seeing is we have been seeing a moderate uh, improvement in exports, uh, a dip in imports, which means that it's going to lead to a trade surplus. Now, is trade surplus necessarily a good thing? Well, if the economy is in a uh, nice situation, yes, it is a very good thing. But the low number of imports also indicate that there is a low demand, domestic demand by the consumers. So if there is less demand, people want less items from different countries out there. And so there's less import. And you look at the inflation levels, it is very, very expensive. I saw, uh, and this might sound like nothing to many people out there, but uh, there was a number, some numbers that came out earlier today, they were doing food prices. And so they were saying that for the first time ever, uh, a single serving of kimchi jjigae, right, mm-hmm. kimchi stew, uh, reached the 8,001 mark. Mm, and so this has never happened before. They were also saying that, you know which food in a typical restaurant menu rose the biggest uh, over a period of one year from December 22 to tw- uh, December 23? Jajangmyeon. Mm-hmm. Oh, and jajangmyeon was know? supposed to be one of the cheaper foods out there. Right. And so it went up to the 7,000 range. And they said mm-hmm. the jump, the one-year jump mm-hmm. out of wow. all the foods out there, jajangmyeon made the biggest jump, which is also concerning because it's one of those foods where it's like very common, right? Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be a cheap meal, but it's mm-hmm. very, very high. And so uh, food prices are up. Everything is up right now, which is why uh, I think 
all the more reason why the Bank of Korea is very, very cautious when it comes to uh, cutting its rates once again. So something that we have to take a look into. Uh, speaking of which, uh, something that we also talked about, by the way, uh, just briefly uh, with uh, Professor Yang Jun-suk yesterday when we were talking about economy, was uh, Taeyong Engineering and Construction. Uh, we talked about their debt restructuring. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time that we were talking about that, we were talking about how the creditors were going to see whether or not they're going to support the debt restructuring program. They actually received 96.1% of support from the creditors to move forward with the debt restructuring program, far bigger than the 75%, I believe, that was required. Mm. Hannah, let's get the latest on this. Yes, no, you're right. No, the level of support was higher than the 75% that Taeyong was required to have for the debt rescheduling program, allowing the builder to postpone the repayment of its debts until April 11th. Now, under the program, due diligence will be conducted to figure out the financial status of Taeyong and its viability, according to the Korea Development Bank, its main credi uh, creditor. Now, although Taeyong has gained needed relief, the builder still must secure its own operating funds, including labor and construction costs, which are estimated to exceed over 500 billion won, which is equivalent to $379.8 million, before a final restructuring plan can be confirmed. Now, a group of creditors called for Taeyong to make bone-crushing efforts to smoothly carry out the debt restructuring program. And Taeyong has been suffering from a liquidity shortage amid high interest rates and a slumping property market and its outstanding project financing loans standing at 3.2 trillion won. Now, real estate PF loans have emerged as a major risk factor for the country's financial sector and the overall economy. And the government has vowed to expand liquidity liquidity supply programs from the current level of 85 trillion won if needed. Yeah, now the, the, the big fear is is that there's going to be some sort of domino effect where mm -hmm. it's not going to be necessarily the, the major companies like uh, Hyundai or uh, was it the Lotte? Lotte also does construction, right? Samsung or yes. LG, right? Or GS, right? It's, it's not those companies, it's the smaller companies out there because uh, Taeyong, I believe, is the 16th biggest mm -hmm. construction company in, in the country. And so is there going to be a ripple effect? And also, uh, the creditors weren't a big fan of how Taeyong was managing all of this. It was almost as if, like, come on, guys, you know, like, of course the government is going to, you know, help us out here. And so, you know, we don't really have to put a lot into out of our own pocket. But, you know, the government and, and the creditors came out strongly and said, listen, we're not going to help you that much. And you better, you know, come up with your own measures. And I guess there was some sort of thing where they're going to put up their stakes in SBS. Uh, and that's why you had this 96.1% support because uh, Taeyong was going to do more out of their own pocket in this uh, debt restructuring program. Uh, let's move on. On Thursday, the government and the ruling People Power Party agreed to erase records of overdue loan repayments for small business owners and individuals in the uh, less privileged groups if they repay all of their debts by May. Seungyeon, uh, tell us more about this. Sure. So credit pardons will be granted to people with 20 million won or around 15,000 US dollars or less in debt of uh, from September 2021 to January 2024, most of whom had their repayments delayed due to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's uh, estimated that up to 2.9 million people will benefit from this program. Now, Yui Dong, PPP's chief policymaker, told reporters that 
that deleting records of overdue loan repayments will elevate credit scores, making it possible for individuals to resume normal financial activities, such as receiving credit cards or taking out new loans. And the government announced that it will sign agreements with banks and other financial institutions by early next week, allowing those who might qualify to benefit as quickly as possible from the decision. So typically, the Korea Credit Information Services keeps a record of debts that are overdue by three or more months and shares it with uh, financial organizations and credit rating agencies, which can limit individuals' ability to take out future loans or use credit cards even after they have repaid their loans. Let's uh, move on here to some international news, something that we've been covering uh, for quite a bit. Uh, what's been going on in the Middle East, what started off uh, with uh, Hamas attack in Israel on, on, on October 7th. That uh, led to the Israeli offensive in the Gaza Strip. Uh, that led to the uh, assassination of a uh, Hamas commander in Beirut in Lebanon, which uh, Lebanon was not a big fan of. And of course, a number of uh, rebels in the Middle East sort of protesting the Israeli offensives by doing their own little antics here and there. We're seeing quite a bit of uh, conflict uh, in the Red Sea. And this is uh, very concerning because it is a key trade route between Asia and Europe. And you have the Strait of Hormuz, uh, which is certainly a gateway for global energy transportation. Tensions there uh, certainly mm -hmm. escalating, creating a major headwind for the global economy, potentially. Hannah, uh, tell us more about the situation over there. Sure. Now, a U.S.-led multinational fleet has launched airstrikes against pro-Iranian Houthi rebels in Yemen who have been threatening civilian shipping in the Red Sea. Now, the Houthis threatened a major response to the U.S. and its allies if they proceeded with military action against its group, and tensions escalated sharply when Iran seized a U.S. oil tanker. Now, the U.S. government said on Wednesday that the United States and the United Kingdom have launched airstrikes against targets in Yemen linked to Houthi rebels. And the widespread bombing reportedly hit more than 10 targets in Yemen's Houthi-controlled capital, as well as the coastal city of al Hodaida. While the bombing was carried out by a multinational fleet as a deterrent, the risks faced by ships traveling through the Red Sea are not expected to diminish any time soon. Now, the Houthis are threatening retaliation and an escalation involving other pro-Iranian militants cannot be ruled out. Houthi leader warned on Thursday that if they were bombed, they would escalate attacks on ships transitioning, uh, transiting the Red Sea. And tensions have also risen sharply in the Persian Gulf across the Arabian Peninsula. In the Strait of Hormuz, a narrow strait that connects the Persian Gulf, home to major oil producers, to the Gulf of Omen, Iran, which has supported the Houthis, seized a U.S. oil tanker, as mentioned. And on Thursday, Iran said it had seized the U.S. oil tanker St. Nicholas, claiming it was a lawful action in response to a court order. Yeah, from what I understand, there's about uh, four South Korean cargo ships or, or shipping uh, container ships that are in the region. Uh, three of them have uh, docked at the port of uh, like Saudi Arabian ports, and one of them is still in, on route right now. And so I think uh, the Minister of Oceans and Fishery contacted the captain yeah. of the South Korean ship and said, if there's anything that goes wrong, if there's any sort of emergency, uh, do contact the Chunghe unit, uh, which would be nearby to provide any sort of assistance there. But uh, as we are seeing, we are mm -hmm. seeing the tensions escalating in two of the world's most heavily traveled shipping lanes, 
really adding to fears of a shock to the global economy, which, let's face it, has already taken a, quite a bit of hit over the past few years. Oh, yes, that's true. Uh, so the Red Sea, which connects to the Suez Canal, is the shortest sea route between Asia and Europe and is the passage for most of the oil and natural gas produced in the Persian Gulf and exported to Europe and North America, accounting for about 30% of the world's maritime container shipping and about 12% of merchandise trade. Now, the Strait of Hormuz, a major point of entry for major, major oil producers such as Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Iraq, is also considered one of the world's largest energy supply routes, with one-third of the world's natural gas and one-sixth of its oil passing through it. In fact, international crude oil prices rose about 2.3% on the London International Financial Futures and Options Exchange that day. And Iranian-backed Houthi rebels have attacked civilian ships transiting the Red Sea 27 times since November last year in the name of helping Palestinians against Israel's, uh, Israel's uh, assault on Gaza. And in response to the formation of the U.S.-led multinational naval coalition, Iran escalated tensions by sending its own warships to the Red Sea, where they seized a U.S. oil tanker. And in fact, Iran has regularly seized Western oil tankers over the past few years. However, given that Iran has been rallying anti-Western and anti-Israeli forces in the name of the axis of resistance to expand its influence in the region, the move could be interpreted as a way to show off its control of the Red Sea and Strait of Hormuz while keeping the West in check. Now, some observers have uh, suggested that Israel's recent bombing of Lebanon and Syria may be a sign of retaliation for the killing of a commander of the Iranian-backed Lebanese militant group Hezbollah and the destruction of Iranian-linked facilities. Now, uh, meanwhile, Iran has been condemning the airstrike of the U.S. and U.K. and claimed that it is a violation of Yemen's sovereignty. And as tensions get higher, the South Korean government is also preparing for a stronger response measures such as uh, intensified monitoring. Yeah, not to mention, I believe uh, one of the things that they're doing is there might be a shortage uh, in shipping containers, and I believe they've deployed extra ships just in case. But uh, something that uh, the South Korean government is keeping a close tab on because we do rely very heavily, uh, but so far there hasn't been any uh, negative impact on the, imp the import mm. of uh, goods coming in through that particular route. Uh, let's finish things off here with uh, one last piece of news, uh, something that we are going to be watching very carefully and cover, I believe, on Monday, Taiwan's presidential candidate. Uh, their candidates making their final campaign pitches to the voters on Friday, just before Saturday's election, and of course the uh, the every the four-year race, right? That happens every four years, just like in the United States. Uh, the key themes include relations with China, and this is the big thing here: Are they going to see pro-China candidates uh, come out on top? Singhal, let's get more on this. Sure. So voters will be choosing their president from three candidates. Uh, the fourth potential contender, contender, uh, billionaire Terry Goh, who is the founder of Apple's major supplier, Foxconn, withdrew hours before the deadline to formally <coughs> register as a candidate. Now, Lao, Lao Qingte uh, represents a ruling Democratic Progressive Party. Ho Wei Yi uh, represents the largest opposition Kuomintang Party. And Ko Wenzhe represents the second largest 
opposition uh, Taiwan People's Party. Now Lai of the DPP, uh, whom China accuses of being a pro-independence advocate, is seen to be leading the other contestants. However, most pundits believe that his party would, fa uh, would fare poorly in the legislative election, which will also take place on Saturday. So Lai claims that even if he wins the presidential election, Taiwan will be unable to go forward uh, if his party fails to secure a majority in the legislative seats. On the other hand, Ho is attempting to become the Kuomintang's first president in eight years. He claims that the war is on the horizon as a result of the DPP's policy. So Ho emphasizes that he will discourage China by strengthening defense uh, capabilities while increasing engagements and contacts with Beijing to reduce the possibility of the conflict. And the TPP's co-commits to increase defense spending to 3% of the GD, uh, GDP while boosting cultural and economic relations with China. Now, votes against the DPP are thought to be split between the two opposition parties. And Ho is pushing co-followers and others to vote for him in order to bring about a change in the government. Uh, meanwhile, Ko is urging voters to bring down both the DPP and the Kuomintang. Again, for our listeners out there, because the election is taking place on Saturday, we'll get, we'll get the results of that over the weekend and uh, potentially we'll be able to talk to uh, an expert in regards to the results of the election and how that's going to impact uh, the ongoing conflicts with China, whether or not it'll kind of settle the conflicts there. Nevertheless, guys, thank you very much for your reports today. Have a safe weekend and uh, we'll see you guys again next week. Thank, thank you. you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.